KLL 580 AM and 90.9 FM HD 3, Urbana. Greetings. Welcome to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today, September 23rd, 2012. Our guest today is someone who is uniquely positioned to talk about American politics, American elections. He is Norman Solomon, a journalist and activist, and also a recent congressional candidate. He'll be talking about American politics, the elections upcoming, what he's learned, and what we should expect going forward. It should be a terrific show. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you join us. But first, let's go to NPR News. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Campaigning continues today as Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney travels to Denver, Colorado for a campaign rally. President Obama is back in Washington. Surrogates for the candidates appeared on Sunday talk shows today. David Axelrod, advisor to President Obama, told ABC's This Week Mr. Romney will lose the election if the GOP does not do a better job of promoting its ideas. I don't think the problem has been that they haven't attacked the president enough. It's not about them tearing down the president. They simply haven't offered ideas about how they're going to lift up the country. And until they do that, I think the American people are going to continue to reject him. And Republican National Committee Chairman Reince Priebus seemed to agree. For the next 46 days, we have to lay out to the American people, not just that we need to start having people in office that that commit to the promises they make, but then we need to lay out the vision and lay out the specifics as we are doing, but more clearly. Mr. Priebus also spoke on ABC's This Week. In Pakistan, a government minister is offering a bounty to anyone who kills the maker of an online video denigrating the Islamic prophet Muhammad. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports, the offer came one day after many cities in Pakistan were engulfed in violent demonstrations over the video. Ghulam Ahmed Balor, a cabinet minister in charge of Pakistan's decrepit railway system, says he will give $100,000 to anyone who murders the person who made the anti-Islam film. And he extended the offer to the Taliban and al-Qaeda to help. Balor did not actually give a name, but it's presumed he means Nakula Baseli Nakula, a California man believed to have links to the online film. Balor was speaking in the northwest city of Peshawar, where at least six people died and dozens were injured in Friday's violent demonstrations against the video. The federal minister acknowledged that his offer is not legal, but he said he was willing to be hanged for it. Pakistan's government has dismissed Balor's comments. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Islamabad. Although the Federal Reserve has slashed short-term interest rates near zero and is pumping unprecedented amounts of money into the economy, Steve Beckner of Market News International reports economists don't see inflation coming. A third of the members of the National Association for Business Economics think inflation will go significantly above the Fed's 2% target over the next five years. But the other two-thirds are more sanguine, believing inflation will stay around 2%. 
But those findings were based on a survey of 236 economists done before the Fed's policy body decided last week to launch a $40 billion per month program of bond buying to lower long-term interest rates and further delayed raising short-term rates. The NABE says only a quarter of its members were in favor of a third round of so-called quantitative easing. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. You're listening to NPR News. A baby panda bear born just last weekend at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. has died. There's no indication what led to the cub's death. Officials say there are no initial signs the baby panda was sick. Cubs are the size of a stick of butter when they're born, and it's possible the panda cub was smothered by its mother. While more than 7 million people are expected for Oktoberfest in Munich, Germany over the next two weeks, the second-largest celebration of its kind is underway in Cincinnati. Sherry Lawson of member station WNKU reports nearly half a million people are expected to attend the celebration of German culture, food, and, of course, beer. Sprayed by the mist from the city's iconic downtown fountain, thousands took part in what's been called the world's largest chicken dance. It's been so-called since the 1994 visit by the Crown Prince of Bavaria. Greg Hollop and his girlfriend Nanette traveled from Cleveland dressed for the event. My girlfriend has her dirndl on, which she bought in Munich, and I have a traditional lederhosen, leather pants and Bavarian shirt. According to organizers, more than 1,300 barrels of beer representing at least 50 brews will have been consumed during Cincinnati's Oktoberfest. For NPR News, I'm Sherry Lawson in Cincinnati. Flood water is receding in Alaska's scenic town, Talkeetna, near Denali National Park, more than 100 miles north of Anchorage. The south-central town in Alaska is now inundated with mud, and residents have to boil their drinking water. Heavy rain overwhelmed rivers that drain to the south, and weather forecasters warn that some Alaska rivers have not yet reached flood stage. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News, from Washington. Support for NPR comes from Staples Copy and Print, with print products and services for businesses like brochures and presentations at Staples Stores or staples.com slash copy and print. Okie dokie, welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, here in WILLAM 580. Coming to you live today with our program, uh, the presidential election and the election day just around the corner. So it's a good time to talk about politics. And I can't think of a better guest to have to talk about politics right now than Norman Solomon. Our guest today, Norman Solomon, is an American journalist, media critic, anti-war activist and recent candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives. He's been associated with fairness and accuracy in reporting since its inception, and he founded Institute for Public Accuracy. And full disclosure, I am a board member of the Institute for Public Accuracy. And even more full disclosure, I'm a good friend of Norman Solomon. Norman, welcome to the Airways. Hi, Bob. Well, it's great to have you here. And I know that uh, you've been on the show many times before. People are familiar with your work. But you've spent the last uh, almost two years working on a daily basis, or year and a half, running for uh, the 6th Congressional District seat in the U.S. House of Representatives in Northern California. And uh, maybe just to update folks, can you tell people why you ran, what it entailed, and how it turned out? Well, I really came to relate strongly to something I read, um, a statement by uh, Upton Sinclair, who, of course, was a great not only novelist and all-around muckraker hellraiser, but also quite a media critic, uh, 
writing the classic uh, book uh, around 1920 when it came out, published it himself, The Brass Check. And he said uh, in 1934, um, and I'm paraphrasing but pretty closely, um, enough uh, words, the world needs a deed. And I, I related to that because, uh, you know, in the ecology of social change and improvement of public discourse, uh, words and analysis are important, but also action. And I think that has to include contending for uh, power in terms of who's governing the country. Indeed. And so you elected to run for the U.S. House of Representatives. You know, I think when I think about running for public office or a person running for public office today, it strikes me in America today is maybe one of the biggest nightmares imaginable. You spend most of your time raising immense amounts of money, uh, and you have to go to people who have money to raise money. And it seems like just something would be incredibly distasteful, even for someone who loves politics, maybe especially for someone who loves politics. What did you find? Well, the, the word bittersweet really uh, does describe it, because in many ways that 18 months plus that I put in uh, so much uh, to participate in the campaign as a candidate, I, I used to say I was you know, I was a volunteer in the campaign, and, uh, you know, 80, 100 hours a week easily. And um, it was really uh, one of the most wonderful and terrible experiences of my life, wonderful in the sense that it was really grassroots. We uh, built it as a campaign that, win or lose, we wanted to have serve in a positive way to, to strengthen civic involvement and social movements. Uh, so that was wonderful, and uh, it was really going from, so to speak, the, the theoretical to the practical and the implementing of, uh, of, of hopes to bring movement uh, change into the electoral arena. But it was also terrible uh, because of, as you mentioned, the imperative, if you plan to contend for power and actually winning, to raise money. And so that was from the get-go. We wanted to do it in the best uh, way possible in the least uh, palatable context you could imagine, which is trying to raise money for a campaign. So uh, we ended up with more than 7,000 individual contributors, and I think that's sort of making the best out of a bad situation, the necessity to raise money. And that, that entailed, uh, I thought of as a healthy ecology in a rotten environment. And so, you know, if you're going to raise money, I think it's better to have it from a lot of folks rather than a few. We averaged about $95 uh, per uh, contribution, whereas my opponents, um, the top fundraisers, it was more like $400 each. Norman Solomon, talk a little bit, if you would, about the district you ran in. You know, what made you think that was a district that would be uh, conducive to your politics and your views? And then exactly how the California electoral laws work, because they're different than they are in Illinois for primaries, uh, and then the outcome, if you would. Yeah, well, it was an open seat uh, for most of the district uh, north of the Golden Gate Bridge, the first time in 20 years that there would be no incumbent on the ballot. stretches through uh, the fairly affluent Marin and Sonoma counties up into the more rural and less uh, affluent Mendocino and Humboldt counties, and then all the way up to the Oregon border. And so you had people who did a lot of telecommuting and uh, were highly professional in the southern part, to people who um, had seen a lot of their industries disappear, uh, the mills closing, the uh, industrial base, to the extent it was up there, gone away, shipping uh, and trade seeming to uh, evaporate or at least dissipate. And people, as I went farther north, were less and less affluent and more and more angry. 
Uh, and the, the laws in California did shift. Uh, now, similar, very similar to Washington State, what's called a top-two open primary. And the gist is that rather than any party being allowed to have its own primary and choose its own nominee for the general election, everybody was thrown on the same ballot. Their names were uh, annotated with party affiliation, but the top two vote-getters, regardless of party, advanced to uh, the general election. And in our case, we had 12 candidates. It's a heavily Democratic registration district. Eight of the candidates were Democrats, two were Republicans. And uh, I missed out getting through the primary uh, by about 0.1%, which is, to say, 175 votes. So it was uh, heavily contested and uh, really an opportunity to see what's possible under this uh, new system. Do you like this new system compared to the old system where you strictly ran as a Republican or a Democrat? Well, I was opposed to it when it was implemented, and significantly all the major parties were opposed to it, but uh, put it on the ballot for their own nefarious reasons, cutting deals in the state legislature, and then couldn't stop it just because of you know general revulsion, I think, towards the party system. I thought that it was unfair and is unfair because it really edges out any party, including the Libertarians or the Greens, to have their own primary and then get to have somebody on the ballot in November. You know, So the new law, which I don't like about it, means come November, it's impossible for any party but the Democrats or Republicans to get uh, somebody affiliated with them on the ballot. But you know, we were sort of stuck with it and then tried to make the best of it we could. Uh, you know, on the plus side, it potentially reduces the power of the party establishment because they don't get to, to engineer and run and sort of uh, gendarme their own party uh, primary uh, so tightly. I did not realize that's the way it works. So in the November race, uh, if you don't finish the top two, you just can't get on the ballot, even if you're libertarian, green, socialist workers, whatever. Yeah, you're totally kept off. And wow. also, I believe even write-ins are basically prescribed. So it's wow. just sort of a mess that way. Yes, indeed. Our guest, Norman Solomon, joining us live today in Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. We're talking about politics, of course. Norman Solomon, just recently a candidate uh, for Congress in, in California. We're also going to be talking about national politics, the presidential election. Norman, you've been doing a lot of work on that. And we're going to be talking about congressional races, what the issues are, where we are in this country today, and where we're going to be going forward. If you'd like to call in with questions and comments for Norman Solomon, the number here, 333-9455. That's area code 217-333-9455. Or our toll-free line, 1-800-222-9455. Norman, in the race for Congress you just ran in, what were the issues you emphasized, uh, and what were the issues you found voters cared the most about? Well, I focused on economic populism and not just unemployment, but the way in which uh, Wall Street uh, keeps uh, defining the rules of the road in Washington in terms of federal policy. And so rather than just talking about the mantra of jobs, I uh, tried to emphasize, and often did this in mailers and so forth, that uh, the Occupy movement was pointing to uh, an attack on democracy that uh, is manifested in you know, the, the widening gaps between rich and poor and the lack of regulation of Wall Street, uh, and not just rhetorically, but literally. Uh, meanwhile, Main Street's just getting the shaft. And I sometimes quoted uh, the election night of 2008 when Barack Obama said that we would not be successful in the future if... Uh, Wall Street was prosperous and Main Street suffered, which, you know, alas, is all 
what has happened because of policy. So I focused on that, and this is a heavily environmental district. As a matter of fact, the winner and next congressperson quite clearly emphasized and burnished his environmental credentials. But I stress that I believe it's impossible to be deep green, including challenging the horrendous climate change, which is already well underway, unless you're willing to fight corporate power, and that means go up against Wall Street. I, I certainly, uh, while opposing uh, Romney for president, which I, I strongly do, I have also been in the campaign and ongoing very willing and able to challenge uh, Obama administration policies, whether it's aligning with Wall Street, supporting nuclear power development, uh, throwing habeas corpus and other precious civil liberties under the bus, having an economy which perpetuates what I think we could call the warfare state, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the madness of militarism, and of course perpetual wars going on uh, simultaneously in uh, several countries, uh, and probably more than that, that sometimes we're not even aware of in terms of drone strikes and surreptitious involvement in military activity. And I um, also uh, really tried to, to stress uh, that uh, until we change this perpetual war motif, then getting our uh, economy straight is highly unlikely. Our guest again, Norman Solomon, uh, he's joining us live today on Media Matters. We do have the phone lines open at 217-333-9455, toll-free 1-800-222-9455. Let's go to our first caller, line four, Coles County. You're on the air with Norman Solomon. Yes, uh, let me make just a brief comment, and then I'll let you comment on my comment. Uh, it seems to me that the left in the United States is in a very weakened condition, terribly weakened condition, like I, I've never seen it. Uh, the Occupy movement is in a very weak uh, situation. The uh, right-wing conservatives have total control, absolute control of the U.S. House, and no one even thinks there's a chance of uh, changing that in this election. Uh, at, at the very best, the Democrats might have about 50% of the U.S. Senate, and they may lose uh, total control of the U.S. Senate to uh, ultra-conservatives. Uh, if Obama wins, he'll just barely win, if he wins at all. The Green Party is a good party, but uh, and they had an excellent candidate for governor of Illinois, but he got less than 3% of the vote, and the Green Party is no longer a recognized party in Illinois and uh, not allowed easy access to the ballot. Uh, other third parties, leftist third parties, are, of course, in bad shape. And, of course, the left is being outspent, and you have the Citizens United uh, uh, situation. And uh, leftists still are terrified of the word socialism, so they won't, uh, they're scared of that, and uh, they're even scared, I think, of being called liberals. Uh, Frank, frankly, I think it's it's a mess, and uh, I'll just let you comment on, on my comment. Well, thank oh. you very much, caller. Norman, I, I must say that I hear comments like that quite a bit. I suspect you do, too, so I think he's probably speaking for a lot of people. Yeah, and it, I, I can't really disagree with the, the gist of what the caller, I think, articulated very clearly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm perhaps second to none or second to few in terms of level of pessimism, although <laughs> I do want to say that um, I think there's a long-shot chance uh, that's emerging for the Democrats to retake the House and uh, whatever criticisms I have, and I have many of uh, uh, former Speaker Pelosi, I'd rather her holding the gavel than John Boehner. Um, that long-shot chance is enhanced, uh, by the way, by David Gill running in Illinois uh, for what is essentially an open redistricted seat. And I think David Gill would 
be not only uh, because he's a Democrat, but because he's a progressive Democrat, a real breath of fresh air. That's why you know I've been supporting David Gill, as well as farther to the north, um, a kind of a sleeper race. The news media are kind of asleep on this. You know, Paul Ryan is dumping a lot of money to retain his congressional seat. And uh, he is uh, advertising a lot on TV, and uh, he is not apparently too confident of the Romney-Ryan ticket being elected because he's choosing to stay on the ballot for re-election as a congressperson in southern Wisconsin as well. Um, I do want to say that I think the callers is unfortunately quite correct. The, the left progressives, uh, even some who call themselves liberals, would say that we, you know, the, the sort of the the collective we, what we hope to do and change in this country, we are in a weak situation. I think that's necessary. Uh, we have been encouraged by uh, Occupy in the last year. We just celebrated or noted the first anniversary. I think, you know, in atypical ways, the news media at first were quite supportive of Occupy, uh, but uh, got tired of or soured on Occupy, began to provide negative publicity, did not do enough to expose the harassment and repression that many city police forces meted out uh, against those exercising basically their First Amendment rights. But I do have to say internally, you know, we have a, a kind of a culture among the left which tends to be anti-leader and sort of uh, tossing out the baby with the bathwater leadership and uh, authority, even if elected, can often be abused. But we still do need leaders, and we don't want to just sort of wander around without a sense of direction. Of course, we want it to be democratically, lowercase d, uh, arrived upon, but we need leaders and, and so forth. And I think Occupy has, has suffered from um, you know, a, a relative uh, absence of that. And uh, then, of course, third parties uh, are up against so many structural obstacles that I, I'm frankly uh, not very optimistic about opportunities in, in that electoral realm. But one of the things that's striking Norman Solomon is that although uh, a very conservative Republican Party, far more conservative than a generation ago or not even recognizable almost 50 years ago, uh, may well keep the House, possibly take the Senate, uh, possibly even take the White House and, and, and really have complete control over the country. And even if it only has one of the three or two of the three, it will have significant control over the country. My sense is when I look at polling, this doesn't necessarily mean that this represents the will of the vast majority or even a majority of American adults. Yeah, I think that's very true, and it's a sort of an echo of what's the matter with Kansas, of people voting uh, for what is not in their own uh, best interest, but even in the so-called uh, blue states, there is this phenomena of the issues um uh, being answered in certain ways by people in their gut level or what they wish, but then when they vote, there's some uh, some real disparity. And uh, I, I wonder, Bob, if this isn't somewhat uh, connected, loosely anyway, to the polling that tells us that on baseline economic issues, uh, journalists, especially, say, in Washington, um, are to the right of the populace in general. And I... I I think there's some kind of reframing. I mean, if we say, hey, the most volatile, powerful issues right now are economic, uh, there's there's no doubting that people are in great distress in terms of their jobs and livelihood, feeling that their kids have an economic future that they had and so forth. And yet the way it gets reframed by politicians and media, and there's sort of negative synergy between the two, really obfuscates the 
way in which big corporate powers are crushing our capacities to regenerate local uh, economic uh, well-being. And so uh, there's some sort of gap, there's some sort of disconnect between the gut-level politics of most of the people in the country and the not only the chattering classes of the networks and major media, uh, but also those who vote on Capitol Hill on legislation. I'd even go uh, in a slightly different direction, Norman Solomon, and say that you know when you look at the data on on how people are going to vote by demographics, uh, you know young people in the United States for the last twenty years have been trending away from the Republican Party uh, for uh, since nineteen eighty four. And in, 19, in 2008, uh, Obama got nearly two-thirds of voters under 29. And that hasn't changed a great deal uh, in, in this election and the polling I've seen so far. The nation's obviously no longer significantly sort of white-dominated, and that's going to continue along its current path. And and so the Republican Party, although it's dominating now, uh, also could look sort of to the future and say, you know, we better lock something in now because we might not be around in our current incarnation for long. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. It's almost like uh, the foreshadowing of a dinosaur situation, especially given the hostility uh, of the the, the reigning uh, Republicans, even distinct from George W. Bush, towards immigrants and Latinos and so forth. This party doesn't seem uh, to have much of a future, given the demographics and so forth, and as you mentioned, young people. But a flip side, and then ironically, is that the Democratic Party, led by Obama, has given hope a bad name. And so even though there's a lot of support among young people, uh, apparently, for Obama and certainly not for Romney overall, the enthusiasm gap is pretty large. And the turnout is going to be, I think, appreciably lower. And uh, maybe that's partly inevitable. I think it's partly, though, the function of a Democratic Party leadership, which has aligned itself with the status quo. And what could be more status quo than Wall Street and these disparities between the wealthy and everybody else and the idea that you, yeah, you bail out uh, Wall Street, but you uh, let uh, people go adrift and have their houses go underwater and you don't really have a, a public works or job creation program with any vehemence to fight for. And so it's almost as though uh, the Democratic Party national leadership says, well, you know, we're willing to squander some advantages we have among young people because we have higher priorities. Norman Solomon, I've heard you talk about this. I've read about it. You have been, over the last several years, one of the strongest critics of the National Democratic Party and the Obama administration on issue after issue after issue, like just like you've spoken about. Yet I would say you are also one of the most forceful advocates of the importance of reelecting the Obama administration in November. And I, that's a sort of a, on the surface, a contradictory position, but I think as you explained it, it isn't. So I want to let you explain what your thinking is uh, to our listeners. Yeah, I do think that whether we call it, you know, walking and chewing gum at the same time or dialectics or just, uh, and this is a terrible phrase, uh, choice of evils, still in all, there is a reality that uh, either Obama or Romney will be uh, come or be president next year. And I think there are some historical parallels, 1980 and 2000. Uh, there was some hope uh, that, well, a Barry Commoner campaign in 1980 uh, would move the country in a different direction. And I think as part of that was an assessment many people had that, you know, Carter, Reagan doesn't matter much. I think we found out, and we're still reeling from the deregulation, attacks on unions and so forth that the Reagan administration brought in. And likewise, 
George W. Bush was, uh, according to some, not going to be that much of a difference uh, from a perspective uh, Gore presidency. I think we, you know, we found out otherwise. And so the practicalities in walking through the algorithm, I think, uh, as the uh, late and always great Molly Ivins, uh, the progressive columnist, said, uh, you know that in the primaries you fight for your heart and your politics, and when November comes along, as a practical matter, you need to assess whether it makes a difference uh, to have candidate A or B uh, come into power. And I think our, our history and our experience, whether it's the Supreme Court or anything else, tells us that with all of the reasons to oppose policies of the Democratic Party, to conflate it uh, in the White House with the Republican Party is a real misunderstanding of where we are historically. Our guest, Norman Solomon, you're listening to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. We're coming to you live today on WILLAM 580. The number here at Media Matters, 217-333-9455. Our toll-free line, 1-800-222-9455. Let's go to our phone lines right now. Line 1, Savoy, you're on the air with Norman Solomon. Um, hi. Um, thank you for taking my question. Uh, I, I really enjoyed hearing your guests talk about the pragmatics of governance and uh, therefore the kinds of choices between second best solutions that we often have to make. And I wonder why the left doesn't talk more about using markets, uh, because to me, markets and capitalism are not necessarily the same. So why don't we talk more about the kind of technocratic approach? Your guests just use the word algorithm, so I assume he's not a technophobe. Why don't we talk about using market-based algorithms to solve a lot of these kinds of problems? For example, the housing problem is in part a problem created by the right, maybe, but it's also, isn't it, in part a problem created by the left by pushing home ownership to unsustainable levels? I'll just shut up and hear what your guest has to say, but I think you get the flavor of my question. Thank you. Bye. Well, thank you very much, caller. Norman Solomon? Well, yeah, thanks for that. And, um, you know, my, my sense is that uh, markets never exist outside of a context. And the idea that government doesn't intervene in markets has always been a fantasy. Uh, government has always played just a major role. Sometimes it's been sort of camouflaged and made to seem natural, like uh, the, ra the rainfall and the wind. But, in fact, government is always laying out the rules of the road and subsidizing and so on and so forth. And uh, in our context with uh, Wall Street uh, having such enormous power uh, over policy in Washington, there is just a tremendous amount of uh, skewing of what we even consider to be possible. So uh, during the New Deal, I mean, markets still existed, uh, certainly, but they didn't have the capacity to thwart uh, respect for and nurturance of the public sector. And I think uh, any uh, reverence for or deference to the market that does not affirm and uh, strengthen the public sector uh, is extremely dangerous because it becomes uh, deference to a predatory set of assumptions uh, that have brought us where we are now. I mean, let's face it, as we speak, there are uh, tens of millions of uh, people in this country who are malnourished, really, not through their own choice, uh, at least sometime during during the year. You've got the, the housing, which is just uh, such a tremendous deficit for uh, low-income people who want to pull themselves out of their distress. A lot of studies have shown housing uh, to be just essential for people to, to right-size their lives and stabilize their, their, their uh, possibilities. And uh, I think, frankly, 
that our news media and the entire politics, including all but a few self-silencing Democrats in Congress, have been very complicit in the choices made by the Obama administration uh, to go ahead and uh, tend to the needs of uh, of Wall Street while we have millions of people losing their homes in the last few years. And one, one other thought, Bob, has to do with the, the, tech, uh, the technological references. I really believe that in this digital age, uh, we should go back and look at some of the observations of people that were you know, identified with the Frankfurt School and so forth, like Herbert Marcuse, who really raised the questions of who controls technology, who sets the boundaries, who's able to... Um, put the playing field into a certain tilt and then control through economics and uh, marketing and, frankly, cultural uh, conditioning, how we approach technology. And uh, there's never been a more relevant time than that now. And uh, we're seeing that technology will never save us from the fundamental questions of what our values are and how they will or will not be implemented in public policy. Norman Solomon, I think you have probably been as, as much of a uh, peace activist in the last decade, if not longer, uh, going back many decades, as, as anyone I know, at least know personally, certainly, but even know generally, uh, your work in it, to prevent the Iraq war and, and invasions of Iran uh, in the last decade have been pronounced. You know, we look at the presidential race now, and we look at most congressional races, and we look at our news media, and there's hardly ever any debate over the nature, extent of our military budget or of our various wars around the world. Afghanistan is all but dropped from view, uh, yet we're living in this enormous militarized society. I mean, how do you deal with that, and what do we do to change that? We have such a, a challenge to uh, bring up the... Uh the often, if not unmentionable, at least just not f fashionable. And um, we, we need to uh, get back to and, and continue to be stubbornly um, asserting our basics and the values, I think, that a warfare state is plunging uh, towards more and more economic catastrophe. You know, Dwight Eisenhower talked about that uh, very eloquently, even while he escalated the nuclear arms race. But even Eisenhower was clear as president, uh, the, the cross of iron, and that this military spending is theft from children and from future generations. And to me, it's sort of back to the future that we need to, uh, contrary to so much of the news media and politics, be in touch with our the best of our heritage. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. and what he articulated when he said, for instance, that we suffer from a status quo of what he called guided missiles and misguided men. Uh, he saw the advanced technology and he saw that an economy based on war was overtly and not so obviously uh, destructive of human life. As he said, the bombs in Vietnam exploded home. He talked about the ghettos. And here in 2012, Afghanistan, uh, other interventions. You know, when I went to Afghanistan, I saw Americans in the street. Each soldier cost... Um, a million dollars a year to keep there and it's just staggering you go home whether it's to illinois or anywhere else and you think now what could one million dollars do just bring home one more soldier a year sooner can you keep the library open can you keep the community health clinic open and these are exactly the human realities that are so fogged up by the usual discourse our guest, Norman Solomon. This is Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Norman, you cut your teeth in the late 60s when you came of age politically and then thereafter. 
in the 60s, I think with the Occupy movement in particular, has sort of returned to sort of getting attention. Maybe the distance has grown uh, between that decade and our current times now, pushing 40, 45 years. Uh, I'm wondering, when you talk to young people today and they ask about the 60s, what do, what do you think is most misunderstood about that period from your memory? Well, two things that come to mind. One is, um, in terms of media, the misconception that the mass media of the day uh, were willing and able and even eager to engage in dissent, to raise fundamental issues about the Vietnam War and so forth and racism. In point of fact, I think that's a, a real big misconception. You know, I, I'm indebted to the, to the empirical work of, of Dan Hallen, his book, The Uncensored War, where he went back and looked at the TV uh, footage of the Vietnam War in the major network news coverage and found very little critical coverage. And so somehow the, the hazing of time has really given the impression to younger people that the mass media were on the side of progressive movements. I would go so far as to say not only were the mass media not on the side of progressive movements in the 60s, but the mass media have never been on the side of progressive movements in other than more transitory or superficial ways, because that's the nature, unfortunately, of the big corporate control and aligned with government policy and the status quo. Um, the other thing, um, I think, is the misconception that most people, most young people, were involved in social movements in the 60s. And I hear that on campuses. Gee, you know, these days there's very few students involved in in social activism. I wish I was a student back in the late 60s when most students were engaged uh, in social change. And more of them were engaged then probably, but most people were not engaged. And it's the nature, I think, of social change that most folks are not um, at the core of making the change happen. It's sort of that saying from Margaret Mead, you know, don't uh, doubt that just a few committed people can make the change. That certainly is the, the engine that makes things move. Norman Solomon, our guest. This is Media Matters. Phone lines are open at 217-333-9455, our toll-free line, 1-800-222-9455. Let's go back to the phone lines right now. Line 1, Champaign County. You're on the air with Norman Solomon. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, I told Christine that I was going to ask about media, and, but I just can't help but say something about this still, this elevation of the market and commodity fetishism that, that still seems. Uh, we have technology, information technology, that would allow a kind of a distributed, not command and control, but a participatory, participatory economics a la Michael Albert that, that w was ne never uh, available in the past. And it's just it's pretty heartbreaking that we're, nobody's really thinking about things in those terms and distributing uh, to those who need. Um, but anyway, um, I, what I wanted to ask about is uh, just if you could give some illustrations of uh, to defend your, uh, I, I, I believe this, but uh, your idea that the, the press is so far, to, is far to the right of the, the, the uh, uh, common person. And the, the polls all show it, but it's just never acknowledged. But I don't know if you want to do that in War and Peace or just about uh, health care, since you mentioned Gill, but, you know, uh, it always, single payer, if it's explained correctly, always polls quite quite highly, but uh, we never we never get there, and the press doesn't take it seriously as an argument, even though uh, uh, you, you would think that they, they would. So um, I'll put a sock in it. Thanks. <laughs> Thank oh, you very okay. much, caller. Uh, Norman Solomon? 
Yeah, thank you. Those are, those are great points. It's hard to think of an issue where the news media have generally done a worse job of explaining the policy option than single payer. I mean, so many times you'll hear, if it's mentioned at all, and of course, omission is a form of propaganda. Silence is a very powerful way to uh, you know, mitigate the possibility of an alternative. But when it is mentioned quite often, and this is um, on many media outlets, uh, even the best, uh, mainstream ones, New York Times, NPR, single-payer will be described as a government-run health care system, uh, which is not the case uh, you know, any more than Medicare, say, is government-run. Uh, the, the whole idea uh, is that health care is recognized as a human right. People can still choose their own providers and so forth within reimbursement, uh, reasonable limits uh, from the government and so forth. And, you know, more broadly, uh, the Media Watch Group FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, where I've been an associate for a long time, has actually done uh, methodical um, studies surveying mainstream news reporters in Washington on bedrock economic issues. And if people go to FAIR.org and do some searching, I think they can find uh, what FAIR has published. And I think Bill Hoynes, one of the academics involved in the study, um, ha has really eliminated that on a lot of economic issues, Contrary to uh, image, mainstream uh, corporate-owned uh, media outlet reporters are actually more moderate, more conservative, less interested in government intervention to have more um, economic equity and so forth. And really that, uh, I think, is not so surprising just given that in the last decades, uh, journalists, at least the ones that haven't been fired and the ones in Washington, have tended to to move up in terms of economic uh, strata and well-being. Uh, but the net effect is that uh, the economic stress that people are feeling is not often uh, that reflected from the journalists themselves. Norman Solomon, the, um, you, you've worked on issues of nuclear power, nuclear energy, and certainly nuclear weapons uh, in your activist career. And as a journalist, you've covered these issues. And I was wondering, uh, there's been a big move in the last three years or so uh, towards uh, what's called fracking, uh, sort of this form of getting natural gas out from underneath the soil that involves using all sorts of chemicals. And it's being held up uh, in The Economist by David Brooks, uh, really even across the political establishment, both parties, as sort of the future and the salvation of not only our energy problems, but giving our economy a, a huge boost going into the future. What's your take on fracking? Well, this is where independent journalism has really shined. Uh, the documentary Gasland, for instance, just a devastating work, a uh, full-length documentary showing uh, what in uh, the northeastern part of the country uh, fracking has done. And yet the economic interests are really uh, powerful, so much so that, for instance, uh, the reputedly liberal governor of New York, uh, Andrew Cuomo, has been quite supportive of fracking, and now it's been moving more across the country, and I think it's, you know, frankly part of an ideology. I mean, uh, to hear Bill McKibben speak, as I did in Madison, Wisconsin, a couple of weeks ago, he's really a voice for so many of us, for millions of us, who say that uh, to just rely on, on fossil fuels is, um, is suicidal for the planet. And so I think we uh, have a sort of the, the the differential or in some ways the tipping point coming from the executive branch of the government. And that's where I think the Obama administration, while not being uh, counter-science like the Republican leadership, there's an acknowledgement from uh, Democratic Party leadership 
that there is human-made climate change, their responses have been all but cosmetic now. And this is part of our huge crisis, as with nuclear weapons, uh, that the two largest threats, the most, if you will, cosmic threats for the generations who will be here after all of us today will be gone. The biggest two threats to survival of those human beings and the planet as a whole, life on this uh, earth, nuclear weapons and climate change. And uh, the mass media are asleep at really alerting us to the necessity for very quick responses, even more asleep in terms of nuclear weapons. But still in all, this administration in Washington has gotten off the hook as it's moved from rhetoric and tepid proposals to virtually no proposals at all uh, to reverse the climate change that's so dangerous. Let's go back to our phone lines right now. Line four, Coles County. You're on the air with Norman Solomon. Yes, I just want to make another very brief comment. I disagree a little bit with you about uh, student involvement in the late 1960s. Uh, I agree that the great majority, of course, of students were not involved uh, physically. They didn't uh, at rallies. They didn't actually attend rallies and protests and so forth. But I think you'll find at that time, particularly by the late 1960s and the early 1970s, uh, in my opinion, a significant majority of students were sympathetic and supportive of the movement, uh, even though they may not uh, bodily have been at rallies. I don't think we can really say that today about students. In fact, I think today students, the great majority of them, just don't give a darn one way or another. But I I think uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s, a significant majority were very supportive of what was going on about the protests. And I don't think we can say that today. Okay, well, thank you, thank you very much, caller Norm Solomon. Any rejoinder? Yeah, well, it's very paradoxical because I think uh, we could say that a lot of the culture uh, was more uh, uh, politically barbed and tough and anti-war in the late '60s and early '70s. Uh, the rock and roll often was more clearly, uh, pointedly uh, anti-war and anti-establishment, whether Jefferson Airplane or whatever. And yet, a paradox is that if you look at the numbers in 1972. Um, most young people voted for Nixon rather than McGovern. And um, arguably, young people are voting more progressively now than they were uh, back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. And yet, uh, we're getting very little political traction from whatever um, uh, aggregate political involvement young people have today. Norman Solomon, do you think that it would be a good thing to bring the draft back and not have student deferments? No, just because I think the draft would further militarize a society, but at the same time, we have a de facto economic draft going on right now and needs to be confronted as such. Uh, So having a draft or not, I think, are both bad choices when each one of them would be in a militarizing context. When I was working on uh, my book, War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death, um, I discovered a study uh, showing that the best predictor for enlistment rate county by county in the United States uh, is the unemployment rate. The higher the unemployment rate, the higher enlistment rate. And unfortunately, the the war makers, if you will, uh, have found a very smooth way uh, to get young people into the military. And the worse the economy is, the better those war planners like it. And at the same time, uh, a draft would, uh, would further regimate the country as well. 
our guest, Norman Salmon. This is Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Let's go back to the phone lines right now. Line one again, Coles County, our hot spot today. You're on the air with Norman Salmon. Okay, thank you. I just have a comment of regret about the elections. And it's the lack of pluralism in the election. There is no option to vote. And I was wondering if I, if he can address uh, what it will be um, in the future if he thinks there is something that will change about that. Uh, some of these groups get dismantled about the the want to hold the power and are corrupting the government, such as the super PACs. Uh, I would like to hear uh, something, a kind of comment about that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, caller. Norman Solomon? Yeah, um, I think that you know, pluralism is, is, is lacking in so many ways in the election. We were, we were talking earlier about uh, market forces. I, I was speaking uh, Thursday evening at Loyola University in Chicago, and uh, one student asked, well, what's wrong with one dollar, one vote? You can help to shape policy and corporate behavior by casting your vote in the form of dollars, or for that matter, uh, although she didn't say that, with your campaign contributions. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the question reflects just the tremendous dominance of public imagination by uh, corporate avenues for how change is purportedly to be accomplished. I mean, the idea of one dollar, one vote is antithetical to democracy, uh, that corporations are by their definition there to make profit, and so they have nothing to do with democracy whatsoever, whereas government has the structural potential to uh, enliven and be uh, guided by and be democratic. And so you know, there's so many ways that our election system, from the, the money primary, the way that corporate media screen out those who are considered to be plausible candidates, to the pluralism of who has the resources to run, to the pluralism of participation. I mean, I have to give some credit to, to some media outlets, including NPR, which about a week ago on, I think it was All Things Considered, a morning edition, did a very good report by Wade Goodwin, the reporter uh, from Texas. Uh, the letters going out to people, prove you're not dead. Uh, if you can prove you're not dead, then, and stay on the phone line long enough when you call our 800 number, we will put you back on the voting rolls. And no surprise, uh, it's often low-income and African-American people who have the burden to have to try to persuade authorities that they should be able to vote. Well, this is the antithesis of genuine democracy or pluralism. Norman Solomon, our guest today on Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Norman, um, from your experience now and your accumulated knowledge for that matter, but especially from your experience over the last two years running for Congress, what would you tell someone who's thinking about doing it themselves? What they should, what advice would you give someone who might want to enter the political fray who had never done it before and had no direct experience? I'd urge people to plan ahead to avoid the impulse item dynamic that often people a few months before an election, I, I sort of think of it like, you know, you, you've gone through the supermarket and you're, you're approaching the checkout counter and you, you see something uh, near the cash register and just sort of grab it on impulse. And I think that's exactly the, the thing to avoid, that if you're interested in running for office, uh, think about it for a period of time and lay the groundwork, talk to a lot of people, um, timeline it out, and make plans. And then uh, think uh, deeply and dialogue with people extensively about why bother to run? How can you augment? If you're 
if you're a voice that's going to duplicate the voice of someone else who is rooted in the community, then better to talk with that person and make common cause. And also, yes, you do have to plan to raise money. Uh, there's this uh, notorious statement from the 19th century political boss, Hannah, who said uh, there are two important things about politics and running for office. The first is money, and I can't remember the second. <laughs> and uh, we need to remember the second. <laughs> it's grassroots organizing because uh, that's essential, especially if you're a progressive candidate. Norman Solomon, we got an email from a, a listener who wants to challenge your assertion that the government has always supported markets and played a key role in markets and says that you're exaggerating the role of government and underestimating and underappreciating the role of private enterprise. Well, sometimes it's, and often it's difficult to see where private enterprise ends and uh, government begins because presidents and uh, elected officials on Capitol Hill and those who are appointed by them and, and ratified and uh, confirmed by them, they're feeding from the same trough. And those troughs are corporate. Uh, and to the extent that it's uh, not always true that uh, private enterprise um, is dominating government policy, then it's because people fought like hell. Uh, they formed unions, they organized, they engaged in electoral contests so that you could have uh, a regulatory uh, pressure exerted by the New Deal and uh, antitrust uh, legislation and equally important in the executive branch enforcement. So if I understand uh, the, the point right, um, the the caller the caller or emailer is is thinking well government uh, is not uh, always uh, involved is that the gist of it yeah I would say so that you might be exaggerating the importance of government and underappreciating free enterprise and entrepreneurship yeah well free enterprise and entrepreneurship function the way um, we do when we get in our car and drive uh, and uh, you can only drive somewhere if there's a road generally if it's you know unless it's a off-road vehicle and those roads exist because public entities have decided what to do with them and it's sort of like uh, i would compare it in a certain way to the idea of culture is is culture sort of innate or does artistic expression draw from the culture that it comes out of and i it, i'm hard pressed to think of any cultural expression or any economic activity that doesn't have its possibilities uh, directed and bounded in some ways by um, the society that they live in. And government, you know, omission is just like commission. Every time the government chooses to intervene or regulate, that is um, a choice. When it chooses not to intervene and regulate, that also is a choice. And that's the terrain through which private enterprise always functions. Norman Solomon, we've only got a few minutes left, and I, I want to close talking, returning to the election, uh, especially the presidential election right now. And you were an Obama delegate in 2008, but even at the time you were, you know, cautiously supporting him. Uh, have you been surprised by uh, the nature of his administration that he has uh, gone the direction he's gone on a whole range of issues that are of concern to you? I've been unpleasantly surprised. I thought we might be able to get a mild New Deal at least, and that he would be uh, more open to and more supportive of uh, public investment and jobs programs that weren't uh, funneled through uh, tax cuts uh, for businesses and uh, um, 
subsidizing, in effect, private uh, enterprises. So it has been uh, surprising, uh, and it, I sort of I, this sort of gets back to the, the question earlier about the, uh, in a sense, the media uh, proclivities to align with corporations uh, in their own attitudes, both individual and functional. Because if you think of what happened with Bill Clinton, he talked about putting people first. He came in in early '93, and he put Lloyd Benson into Treasury, and it was. Uh, it was almost all over from that point. And likewise, with uh, Obama, he puts in Tim Geithner, and I think that was the beginning of the death rattle of uh, populist progressive possibilities for this administration. So uh, long story short, yeah, really disappointing. And let's go to the other side of the coin. Um, Mitt Romney had a reputation uh, in the 90s, certainly, uh, as being a moderate uh, Republican, certainly even liberal Republican on, on issues that didn't involve Wall Street. And um, some people have held out the hope that, you know, he's basically throwing some bones to the far right, but once in power, he will uh, move more towards the center. What's your take on Mitt Romney as a person, a candidate, and prospective president? Well, he seems to be uh, giving opportunism a bad name. He seems to be bereft of much of an ethical core. And as we saw with uh, George W. Bush, a Republican who's able to eke a victory into the White House is extremely dangerous because uh, his dismissal of the 47% is just a metaphor for an approach that says, look, we get the power, we keep the power, and we're going to pursue our agenda. It's hard to think of... Uh, any major party presidential candidate uh, in my lifetime with an agenda more dangerous than Mitt Romney's. And I think this surreptitiously taped and uh, recently released in the last week video of his reference to the 47% uh, says to people, not just progressives, but people who would call themselves moderate or liberal or whatever, that what we might fear about his ethical core or lack thereof uh, was very much and is very much a reality. Our worst fears are confirmed by that video. What did you um, make of his tax returns that were released? Uh, part of the 2011 returns, or most of the 2011 returns, were released uh, on Friday. Uh, what, what do we learn from that, and is there more we need to see? Well, I think there's more that we need to see. He seems to be titrating the dose of information and sort of sculpting around uh, and uh, giving giving not the returns, but just sort of I think we can assume very selective, cherry-picked information about the last 10 years. And the word Friday, I think, is important in the question, too, because traditionally, you know, a dump of data Friday is done in the hopes that sort of like taking bad medicine, you know you got to do it, but you do it when you hope it'll dissipate in terms of people's attention. What, you know, the guy is, uh, is, is not only, it's not only that he is of the one-tenth of one percent, or whatever you would say, but that's who he's representing. And I think that ultimately this is a class war, and it's being waged most vehemently uh, from the top down by the Republican ticket. Uh, and we shouldn't forget Ryan either. They're unapologetic about waging that sort of war, and we're seeing the consequences of uh, those kind of priorities already in our country. Norman Solomon, I see that our time is drawing to a close. I want to thank you for taking an hour out of your Sunday to join us here in WILL. Oh, it's always great to be with you, with you, Bob, on Media Matters. Yeah, and we'll be in touch soon, I am sure. And I want to thank, of course, Christina Williams, my producer, Kyle Croho, my engineer. I'm Bob McChesney. We'll be back with you in 167 hours. Until then, everyone, have a great week. 
Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance, private instruction for social or competitive dancing, weddings, or other special events, lessons for singles or couples, beginners, or advanced of all ages. Information at 378-4601 or on your web, search at Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance. This is Illinois Public Media, WILL 580 AM.